Take your Bibles with me and let's go back to John chapter 6 as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. We're looking at verses 35 to 71. Last week we read this entire passage. Today we're not going to read the entire text. We're going to read some selective parts as we go back through it and hopefully just kind of remind you of what the entire text says. And uh, if... uh, if you're not that familiar with it, maybe you haven't been here before, you're visiting with us, you know, kind of peruse through what we're seeing as we, we look at these verses. One of the things we try to do here at church is, you know, I, I don't think you really care a whole lot what I think about anything. We come together to see what God thinks about stuff, and so we study His Word. And uh, that's what we want to look at. Just take your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you got one on a phone. You know a lot of people use them on their phones now. Um, if you do, that's great. Just don't get tempted to go Google something else. And uh, that's great, but there's also some Bibles in the pew racks around you. Let's uh, look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that no man can pluck us from your hand. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Lord, not only can it never be that an external force could pluck us from your hand. It's also true, we see in the scripture today, and this is doubly sweet to our souls, Lord, that you will never cast us away. Not only can no one take us from you, you will never divorce us. And Lord, none of that's because of anything that's good in us. It's because of the good that is in you. And your grace. Help us, your children, to just rest in that today. I pray that, Lord, if there's someone here today that really struggles with an assurance of salvation, they know you, they're a believer, and yet their faith is always kind of topsy-turvy. I pray, Father, that the Spirit who gives life, the flesh avails nothing. We see that in this text. That your Spirit would speak life in their heart in such a way that they would just rest in you. They'd have that aha moment when they realize there's nothing they can do. It's just resting and trusting what you have done. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen the little bracelet? What would Jesus do? It's a good question to ask, what would Jesus do? But I think we should all wear a different bracelet, and I don't know what the acronym would be. What has Jesus done? That would be a good conversation starter. Not only what would Jesus do in any given situation, but more importantly, what has Jesus done. When he hung upon the cross, he said what? It is finished. He has won our redemption. That event is yet in the future when we are looking at this text, and yet Jesus knows what is yet to come. That his flesh and his blood will be given in a sacrifice for our sin. 
And it is in that work that the deed is done. The price is paid. Now let's look at the text. We're going to start reading in verse 35. And when I get to somewhere where I want to quit, I'll just tell you where to jump ahead to. But let's start in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me, this is a precious promise, will come to me. Jesus is not, God the Father is not, the Holy Spirit is not sitting on the edge of his seat worried that someone whom he has foreknown isn't going to come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever it is that comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing or none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Four times in this text he says, I will raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son, believes in him, would have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because they said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now look down in verse 44, 43. Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 52. The Jews then argued among themselves and they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Look at the word abide there. A couple years from now, when we get to chapter 15, <laughs> we'll see a lot on that. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, the manna, and they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus taught these things in the synagogue at Capernaum. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? 
Oh, boy, we talk about being offended all the time today, don't we? People are offended. You know what? Amy told me, Amy saw this bumper sticker somewhere, bumper snicker, said, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. <laughs> ah, that's a good one, right? Just because you're offended don't mean you're right. People get offended. Do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Oh, they get offended at what he just said there. That's a prophecy in the book of Daniel. About the Son of Man. And then notice verse 63. This is very important in the text. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh doesn't do anything. The flesh is of no help. The words that I spoke, they are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, notice here the omniscience of Jesus. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. From the beginning. Notice that word, the beginning. In the beginning was the word. He's not just talking about the beginning of the day. He's talking about the beginning. Jesus knew in the beginning who those were who did not believe. And he even knew who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, we'll look at verse 66 to 71 again next week in conjunction, but that's the conversation with Simon Peter. To whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But let's focus on this. Okay, we're talking about grumble, grumble, grumble. Just like the children of Israel in the Old Testament grumbled at Moses about everything. The manna wasn't good. The quail was too many when they got it. They didn't have any water, whatever. You know, think about it. They just grumbled about everything. Grumble, grumble, grumble. So, too, the children of Israel are grumbling at Jesus in the wilderness. He has fed the 5,000, and yet it's grumble, 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 dispute. Last week we began this when we just introduced it, and we looked at this truth. In verse 66, we are told that many of these disciples, these followers, now I want to use this word, this, the word disciples doesn't refer to the 12. There were 12 apostles. Sometimes we call them the disciples. Okay, but let's think about it this way. The apostles were disciples, But just because you're a disciple doesn't mean you're an apostle. The words are not synonymous, okay? The apostles are disciples. They are followers of Jesus. That's all the word disciple means is to follow, to follow Jesus. And so what we have is there were many disciples, not just of the 12, but of the crowd. And there were multitudes of disciples. There are many of them who turned back from following Jesus because of what he just taught. 
in the synagogue of Capernaum following the feeding of the 5,000. Now, what are some things that Jesus said in this sermon that are so highly offensive that Jesus says, why are you offended? We already talked about that word. When we say offended, we usually mean like, oh, you just like hurt my feelings, right? My sensibilities. Maybe I felt you were rude. Maybe you cut me off on the street. Whatever it is, and you offended me. You hurt my sensibilities. When Jesus uses that word to offend, it is the Greek word scandalon. Sorry for my slop. Greek word scandalon or scandalizo, and it means to cause to stumble or to offend. To cause to stumble. So it's a bigger word. It's not like you just hurt my feelings. It's like, why are you stumbling? At what I said, what are you tripping over? In 1 Peter, Jesus, or Peter uses that word about Jesus when he talks about how Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but to many he is a rock of offense. He is a rock over which they stumble. So what is it about what Jesus just said that is so offensive to them that many people abandon him and they're done with him? So much so that Jesus even turns to Simon and says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? Jesus says, well, I don't don't know what you meant by what you said, but to who else should I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Which is a reminder to us, you know, there's many times we have not a clue what God is doing in our life. And when we come up against a place in our life when we don't understand what God is doing or what he said in his word, there's a crisis that happens. Am I going to offend and stumble over this and say, well, fooey on this? Or am I just going to simply say, I don't know, but I'm going to trust you? That's the heart of a true believer. So what is so offensive? Now, we began to look at this last week. The first one is Jesus' claim of exclusivity. That is highly offensive. That's highly offensive today. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Okay, so what we're going to see here, Jesus also says, I will raise him up. Jesus lives no wiggle room. If you get to go to heaven when you die, the only reason will be because Jesus, there is no salvation in any other name that Jesus raises you up. Buddha ain't going to do it. Buddha couldn't raise himself up. Mohammed isn't going to do it. He couldn't raise himself up. The only one that demonstrated the power over the grave is Jesus Christ. And so he says, I will raise you up. No one else will. That is the message of the gospel. And in the world in which we live, that is highly offensive. People just want to say, as long as you're sincere, you're good to go. doesn't matter who you worship. You you don't even worship yourself. Right? You worship yourself. And as long as you're sincere about it, things are pretty good. Well, you know what? Jesus would say, bunk on that. That is not true. One way. 
Secondly, here's another thing that people grumble and dispute about. Look at church history. Jesus' teaching about the sovereignty of the Father in saving man. Okay? Jesus says it. We're going to look at that a little bit today. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's pretty clear, pretty concise. You know, I think the people understood what he meant by what he said, and that's why they grumbled. Really? Really? Here's the other one. Jesus' teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What does he mean by that? What does he mean? Now, we're going to try to kind of fit these two into the message today. We'll come back to that one next week, so don't, don't get too hung up on that one yet. These are three significant areas of theological debate among the disciples of Jesus even today. You know, what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the only way? How about those who believe in universalism? There are many churches in America today that you could go to and they would just preach a message of inclusivism. It's not in the Bible. That's not a true church. Jesus is the only way. Number two, the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is a big area today that people, you know, dis- dispute. And, you know, I mean, there's going to be some fine points of nuance in this that disciples are going to really kind of, you know, have that tug of war like pulling taffy. What does that mean? Well, there's some good nuance that goes on there. And there's some open debate. But I think it's clear to a true believer that God says here, he is the one who saves. He is the one who does it. Number three, the absolute necessity of Jesus' death as a sacrifice for sin. And then I got to partake in that. Now, we're going to, there again, there's some nuance here. What does that mean? But Jesus is telling these people, my body is a sacrifice, and I am giving my life, my flesh, and my blood. And if you partake of it, you will be saved. If you do not partake of it, you won't. There's a lot of grumbling and disputing about that one. So let's think about this first message of exclusivity, first of all. Number one, four times he says, I will raise him up. <coughs> and when will he do it? On the last day. So what happens to all of our loved ones until that last day who have died? Jesus says, I'll raise them up on the last day. What does Jesus mean there? Let's think about it for a minute and just think about what does this mean regarding what we're going to call the intermediate state of those who die in Christ. So let's think about it this way. There's a time in our existence when we are living physically on earth But at some point, that life will end, and I'm going to go down in a box six foot under. My body is. And it also tells us on the scripture that there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return, and we're going to call it the last day, and everything that's in that box is going to get brought out of the box. This is the last day. 
So what happens to me between here and there? That's important, isn't it? If I was quick with my computer, I would erase that because I got a bunch of points there. Hopefully you can read through it. Okay? We read this this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Absent from the body, what happens? Present with the Lord. That tells me something. The real me is not just this that I can pinch. It's a tent to dwell in, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in this tent, I groan. But if you've, and if you've ever been at the graveside of a loved one or looked at someone you love in a coffin and you look at that tent to dwell in, laying in the coffin, there's something that is intuitive in your mind. And that is, what's going on in your mind is, oh, they're dead, they have ceased to exist. What's going on in your mind is what? They left it. They're not there. Their body is, but they're not. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul said this, For me to live is Christ, but to die, that's what? Go take a long nap until the resurrection? Go lay in the grave and just wait to be raised up until the last day. No, for me to live is Christ, but boy, to die, that is better. And then Paul says, you've been praying for me, and I trust because of your prayers I'm going to be delivered from prison. And if I am, that means fruitful service. But Paul says, I'm in a quandary. I don't know whether it would be better to come on back on board and continue to serve or to depart to be with Christ. That's what Paul says. Paul's not thinking when my physical body dies, I am just taking a long nap until the resurrection. Paul says, I'm going to depart and be with Christ. Thief on the cross. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today, you'll be where? With me in paradise. Abraham said what? Or excuse me, Jesus said of Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day. Abraham is in glory when Jesus says, okay, it's time. I'm going to go crawl in the womb of a virgin. They were rejoicing in heaven. There was a worship service going on in glory because they were excited about what was happening. So, the intermediate state is this. When I die, when this physical body ceases to live, and they put me in a coffin, and then they carry me up on a hill, I've got a spot picked out on my ranch where I want them to dig the hole, and that's where my body's going to wait for the resurrection. But I'm going to go and be with the Lord. And then someday on the last day, I'm going to come with Jesus. And he's going to call my body out of the grave. And I'm going to meet it. And forever I'll be with the Lord. 
in a glorified state. So in the interim, a part of me has to wait. And that's until the last day. He will raise me up. Jesus will do it. Job puts it this way. I love this verse. I know my Redeemer lives. And he will stand on the earth at the last day, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. Think about what Job is saying there in faith. I mean, you could maybe find some DNA of the guy somewhere in a grave. Other than that, that guy's gone. He was food for worms. And Job says, even though my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. And then what did he say? Oh, my heart longs for that. Okay? So when we think about the intermediate state, we should be encouraged by the reality that although our body, your body at some point, will die, will go into the ground, it will await the resurrection. Nevertheless, your spirit, your soul will go to be with the Lord. And those who are alive and remaining at the last trump will not proceed, it says in Thessalonians and in Corinthians, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will come with him. And we will be reunited with those we love as well as with our own transformed body. Man, won't that be great? In this body, we go, I don't know about you, sometimes I get sick of my tent to dwell in. Ever since some of the physical problems I've had, man, I look forward to that. Who then will be saved? Okay, let's go on and think about the sovereignty of God, and we'll sum it together and bring it to a close. Those who believe. Those who believe. That's who will be saved. Who are those who will believe? Those whom the Father draws. That's what it says. Who will be saved? Someone who believes. Well, who's going to believe? Those who the Father draws. We're going to think about that phrase in a minute. Who are those whom the Father draws? Those whom he has foreknown from all eternity. Remember that? We saw that little phrase this morning. In the beginning, he knew. Now, we can debate what it means that he knew. Did he just know what would happen, or did he cause it? That, let's have that debate. That's okay. But what we're going to still say is the reason he draws is because he foreknew some from all eternity. Think with me of the Trinitarian cooperation in man's redemption for just a minute. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Father draws, and it tells us in verse 66, he grants. So Jesus says, you can't believe in me because the Father grants that. And the flesh avails nothing. The Son gives his life. So the Father draws. He grants it in his sovereign plan. The Son carries it out by being the sacrifice for our sin. And the Holy Spirit is the one who uses the word. The words that I speak to you They are spirit. They are life. And what did he say there? The flesh, your own ability, it counts for a little. 
Is that what he said? Your flesh, your ability counts diddly squat. Nothing. It don't matter. And so we see the Trinitarian cooperation. Now, there are two central realities I want to highlight for a minute. Number one, the inability of man to save himself. If you think you can save yourself, if you think you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you got another thing coming. You will never do it. Man, the Bible presents this idea of what we call the total depravity of man, which just means my entire being is saturated and affected by sin. I can't save myself. He demonstrates that clearly in verse 36, 44, and 63. And you know, one of the ways that we really pay true, uh, what would I say, not lip service, but the, the way we attest to this reality is if we really care for somebody and we want to see them to be saved, what do we do for them? We pray. Why? Because we recognize that Scripture says only God can do it. So we pray. The fact that we pray for someone tells us it's not just them. So if I'm going to go talk to my buddy and I'm going to tell him about Jesus, I am not trusting that I'm going to be so smart and so wise and so gifted as an evangelist that I'm going to talk him into it. I'm going to be faithful and talk to him, but before doing it, what am I doing? I'm praying because I know that unless God does it, nothing I do matters because the flesh avails what? Nothing. Nothing. The the inability of man, number two, is the initiative of God. We see here the effectual call of God. He draws, he grants. I love verse 37. We also see the preservation. Look at that verse 37. I could preach the whole sermon on this. All that the Father gives me will come. All that the Father gives me will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I love the word never. The word never is formed in the Greek language by taking two negative particles and putting them together, ooh and me. And thus it becomes what we would call in English a double negative. I've told you this before. So when Jesus says in Hebrews, I will never forsake you, same thing, ume. And those two particles put together form a double negative. Now, if I, and I've told you this before, if I in English use a double negative, I say, I'm not never going to do that. You look at me like you didn't get out of second grade, right? I'm not never going to do that. You say you're just a redneck who don't know how to speak the king's English. But if in Greek you use a double negative, you're doing it intentionally. And it is to create what is called an emphatic. You ever had a mom be emphatic with you? You know the difference. Emphatic. 
What he's saying is this. I will never cast you away. I will never, no, never cast you away. Rest in that. The verb to cast away is most often used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus casting out a demon. That's the most common occurrence of that word, to cast out a demon. When Jesus casted out a demon, he is saying what? He is banishing that demon from a relationship and he is throwing it off into perdition. That's why some of the demons said, please don't send us into the pit. Let us go into those pigs. Jesus will never break off a relationship with you and cast you in the pit. He will never, no, never. You said, well, I've trusted him. I know I've trusted him. I know I've been born again. I know his spirit lives within me because I've seen that evidence, but man, did I sure screw up. Now, I'm not trying to give false assurance where false assurance isn't due, but you're in that position And your hope is, Jesus, look, you screwed up. You know what? So have I. That's not what saved me, was that I didn't screw up. The reason I need a Savior is what? I have screwed up. And so what did he say? I can look at him in the eye and I can trust in him. He will never throw me away. Even though I have sinned. Would you rest in that? Let's go on and just bring it to a close. Unless the Father draw him to draw, that word is most often used of a net of fishes. So in John chapter 21, it's used about the time when Jesus does a miracle to prove that he's been resurrected and he brings all those fish into the boat. You remember that? And then he eats with his disciples on the beach at the Sea of Galilee. But, but, but Peter and the other apostles draw in the net. They draw it in. It's also used in Acts and in James of being drugged into court. Now, what does this mean, to be drawn? This is my own definition. I hope it isn't heretical, but I think it hits all the main points. It is the sovereign action of God. Excuse me. Got a head full of schnott. That would do a farmer blow, but you wouldn't like it. That might offend you. (laughs) Right? It might offend you. My dad taught me to do the good farmer blow. If you don't know what that is, try it sometime. It works. Just do it outside, not in here. Sorry. Father draws him. It is the sovereign action of God whereby he uses his word and his spirit. And he does it in conjunction with his acts of providence. Doesn't he do that? I mean, God brings you into some mess. And in that some big mess that you made in life, Oh, man, God brings good out of it. 
through his acts of providence and his word and his spirit, he overcomes our resistance and rebellion. And he brings us into a state of willingness by his spirit. And in that state of willingness, we then believe and receive the gospel. That's what the Spirit does. He overcomes our resistance. Man, do you remember a time when you were just resisting everything the preacher said? I remember it. God began to work in my heart. And all of a sudden, those things that just so offended me, and those things that I held on to and I didn't want to give up, my power over my own life, all of a sudden started to melt away and my resistance and rebellion to the gospel began to dissipate like the morning dew. And all of a sudden I began to will to really have life and to have it in Jesus. That's what it means to be drawn. Um, we could think about it this way, and let's just mention this. God is not stingy about drawing men. Because some of you say, well, then what if it draws, if he has to draw us, then what does it matter what we do? And yada, yada, all the stuff that we wrestle with, I get it. But let's just hang our hats on this as well. God is not stingy about drawing men. The heart of God is such that it tells us in Hebrews he is bringing many, many kids to glory. He's not stingy. So Jesus said, in a parable, he told these guys to go out into the byways and the lanes and persuade them to come in. Why? Jesus wants the Father's house to be full. And he's not going to miss anybody unless the Father draw them. Let's think about magnetic. Have you ever been drawn to somebody? Another person? I struggled with whether to use this illustration. I know i got to shut up and quit here. But when I went to work at Redcliffe Bible Camp in the 80s, showed up in Pinedale, Wyoming for the first time, and we had a barbecue at a lady, we called her Mom Mason's house, all the staff that was going to be on staff that summer, and uh, then we went to the camp, which sits up in the mountains in the Wind River Range after that. But we had this barbecue, and, you know, everybody's sizing each other up. You, you know, who are these other people I'm going to be working with for the summer? And my, I still remember my wife walking in the room. I was drawn. She drew me right in. And I'm not just saying physically. She just drew me to herself. It was a magnetic Something happened in my soul that just drew me to her. And you know it when it happened to you. That irresistible pull. Now, a magnet has no draw on some metals, right? Like lead. Doesn't do anything to lead. I won't get into what magnetism is and all that, because I ain't a scientist. But then there are other metals that just simply cannot resist. Right? It is the property in the metal that causes the draw. Now, what is the property in metal that causes our draw to God? It is the property in the heart that God used to create a draw by the word, by the spirit. In other words, what's happening, what draws me, what is that magnetic pull to the Father? It is because the spirit is working in my heart. 
And all of a sudden, what to me one day was the odor and the aroma of death becomes the aroma of life. Here's the application. I'll quit. When God is drawing someone to himself, his spirit creates a hunger for the word in the heart. That's what happens. The word that I speak to you, it's life. John Bunyan said it this way on Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, yet it is indeed a certain truth that at that time when I was becoming a Christian, it would have been as difficult for me to take my mind from heaven to earth as I have found it often since to get from earth to heaven. He said, when God was doing this in my heart, I could not think about anything except the word. Since that time, I remember that happening to me. Since that time, sometimes to my chagrin and eternal misery, I've not always continued that way. Here's another application, and this is an important for us as we close. If you want God to use you to draw men to Jesus, major on the word. It is the only thing that God has promised to bless. It's the only thing. God never promised to bless your personality or your charisma, even your life story, your abilities or your resources. He has not promised to bless them. But he has promised what? To bless his word. Now, the word becomes extremely powerful when it is united with a life that is sold out to Jesus. But it's not just the life that is sold out to Jesus that is magnetic. It's the word. If you want God to use you to draw men to Jesus, don't point them to you. Point them to the word. Get people in the book. I have noticed that. That if people get in the book, The word that he speaks, it is spirit, it is life, our flesh, nothing. It's nothing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that I just want to go back and thank you again that you will never cast me away. And I know, Lord, that you will not cast those who come to you away. Help us to trust and rest in that. Help us, Lord, as well, not to worry so much about our own abilities and our own personality and charisma. Just, Lord, help us to learn the word and to just share your word, to sow seeds like the farmer take your word. I pray that, Lord, you take your word that was spoken today and you would do with it whatever you want, for you are sovereign. I pray in Jesus' name.